I love my romance with a side of sports. I think that is a great place for sports to be in literature. So, <laughs> Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. This is part two of our top five books in 2022. So review our number four and number five picks last week. So today we're going to tell you the rest of our picks our top three. So I am very excited to find out what's on everybody's list. We're going to go right into it. Let's start with Mark. So my book that I'll be talking about now is uh, Internet for the People by Ben Tarnoff. Um, so in this book, uh, the tech writer Ben Tarnoff explores how the internet has developed from its inception in the 1970s through military and government science projects to the 1990s and the beginning of internet privatization to the present of social media and dominated consumption spaces that make the internet in Tarnoff's words basically just a giant online mall. Tarnoff gives a summary of some of the ills of the modern internet that we've probably heard a few times before about data, surveillance, extremist content on social media, and related issues. But Tarnoff is quick to point out that things didn't have to be this way and don't have to be this way in the future. If people collectively begin to demand changes to the way the internet's infrastructure is developed and owned. The presence is a result of deliberate decisions made by government officials to essentially sell off the government stake in the internet to private companies and business executives to allow private control of key internet infrastructure, to allow collecting of data in an unrestricted manner, tolerance of hateful speech, so long as it's profitable for large corporations to allow it. Tarnoff points to solutions in a less centralized and more distributed form of control drawing on examples of locally owned utility cooperatives and civic organizations like libraries to decentralize social media platforms like Mastodon, which you may have heard about a lot more in the media recently, especially in relation to things like Twitter and these other large social media alternatives, where the network isn't controlled by a single company and a motive to profit doesn't come to dominate management and content moderations decisions, as, th as this could be a way forward for a better internet that is accountable to people and not profits. For example, in like a network like Mastodon, it's controlled by a large number of people that can essentially set their own sets of rules. They can create a federated network of resources that don't have to be controlled by one specific person who likes to tweet his thoughts at any given moment. So in this way, Tarnoff seeks to change the question from how can we have a healthy, privately owned internet to what is the internet we want and where does pro-market mentality get in the way of this? So if you've been hearing a lot about the problems with social media sites, big cable companies, or other major shopping and advertisement companies that not only operate but dominate the online world, then you may be interested in hearing Tarnoff's assessment of what we can do to start to change how these things work, rather than simply mitigate or limit the damage from some of the most egregious harms of internet privatization and market concentration, then you may also like to read Internet for the People. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for bringing some nonfiction to the Keep It Fictional podcast. It's excellent. All right, Corinne, what are we bringing to the Keep It Fictional podcast today? 
Uh, we are bringing a book that is described as surreal and absurdist, two words that I absolutely hate when describing fiction, and yet somehow has wheedled its way into my third place. This is a book that I have talked about on the podcast before. It is Emmy Yagi's Diary of a Void, a novel translated by David Boyd and Lucy North. Uh, this is the story of Miss Shiabata, who goes from an overtly sexist workplace to a subtly sexist workplace, um, where she is expected, because she's the only woman in the office, to do all the photocopying for people, to go around and share the snacks to everyone at their desks, and to make coffee for every meeting. One day when she is asked to clean up the conference room after someone else has had a meeting and get rid of all the stale, gross coffee cups, she declines because, oh, my morning sickness, I can't because I'm pregnant. All of a sudden, everything changes. She is told to go home early and take a rest. All of a sudden, um, they can kind of clean up the conference table themselves. She gets access to a whole bunch of more health benefits. She can leave on time. No more overtime for the pregnant lady. And miraculously, all the men in the office have suddenly learned how to make coffee. Huh, who'd have thought? The only problem is, is that Ms. Shibata is not pregnant at all. This is a <laughs> fascinating funny, sly, smart look at workplace sexism is a look of feminism. It is like a searing also view of motherhood, which I didn't see coming, but is also there about emotional labor. It's a multi-layered, extremely funny, extremely weird book. Is she really pregnant or is she not? And is she really going to have a baby that's imaginary or not? I don't know. I really don't know but I love it. And so this did take my top three. It's a book that I think about constantly. <laughs> um, and I I really, I, I can actually recommend this to most people, um, even though it's a little weird, it's a little surreal and absurdist, but I think that it is well worth picking up. So this is my top three pick. Thank you, Miss Corinne. Every time I listen to you talk about this book, it's like, yeah, I got to read it because it feels like it's going to be a really fun one. It's very fun. It's very, I mean, it's. It, I don't know if it's weird enough for you. Is there anything? Well, guess what? Um, my number three pick is my, one of these things is not like the other pick because it has no weirdness, I don't think. No spaceship, no aliens, no magic, no ghosts, no hauntings, no cannibals. But yet, just like you said, it is number three on my list. And it is entirely because of the main character. It is the most unforgettable characters that I read this year. So write this down. Kara Romero wants to work. This is a story of 56-year-old Kara who thinks she will be working in the lamp factory forever and ever. But the factory up and left moved to Costa Rica. So now she is unemployed. And after two years of getting checks from L. Obama, she has enrolled herself in a job assistant program. So for 12 weeks, she's in this senior workforce program at the employment center where they're going to try to assess her like skills, her experience, and try to find jobs that fit her, that will work for her. And because she has not applied for a job in like two decades, this is also a chance to get her prepared for those job interviews to help her fill out those applications. But during these 12 sessions, well, good luck to that job counselor who's trying to like get Kara on topic and to get her to actually talk about work because through these 12 sessions, Kara wants to talk about her life. She is so busy unloading everything about her life. And so we get all her woes, her problems in relationships, her financial problems, everything, everything from first 
fleeing from the Dominican Republic to the States because she thinks her husband wants to kill her, to relationship with a son who is now estranged, to her quarrels with her sister, Angela, because Kara has certain point of views about how she should parent her kids, especially when she babysits them, to a rapidly gentrifying Washington Heights neighborhood where she lives in an apartment building where the landlord is trying to drive all the old tenants out so that they can rent it out to new people at a higher rate. Her life with her best friend, Lulu, Together, they like to watch the lobby security camera to keep tabs of who comes and goes in the building. To her elderly neighbor, she tries to take care of La Vieja, Takaridad, and all the things that she does for like people in the apartment that they don't seem to notice or acknowledge. To, of course, her maybe correspondence with Alicia, the psychic and online scammer, maybe, who gives her advice on what she should do. This is a story about life as an immigrant. And as she said, with limited resources, limited financial means, limited ways to upgrade herself. And she come to this country, she said, it's like a fisherman with fast hands on the beach, which show you the big fat fish. But when he cooks it, he says that it has shrunk. It is just the best character, this busybody, this this definitely oversharing kind of character. You learn everything about her. And it's not like a perfect character, definitely, because there's a lot of flaws to her and she is, you know, having a lot of maybe some regrets, you know, and, and, and a lot of secrets, a lot of struggles. And one of the best things about the books is, is while you, you kind of listen to her story, um, you also get these, uh, at the end of the, each chapter, you get like sort of the, the job applications or sometimes like forms that she has to fill out or the rent notices. And it's just the most hilarious thing, like, you know, she was she was trying to fill out this employment form and and so she said what is a job title previous employment you know what is a job title well whatever jobs need to get done supervisor's name well the good one or the bad one and then it's like what hours are you available to work um well all the hours all the shifts except you know between eight and nine because i have to watch tv not before seven because you know i need to sleep after 10 at night i'm not so good on sundays i like to clean do laundry visit angela and and her nan and the children and i have to come home by five so that i can make dinner but otherwise yes i am available for all the hours and then you know when it asks for a personal reference she'll be like well i would put my sister Angela, but I can't predict what she's going to say about me. When asked, have you ever committed a criminal offense? And she said, well, it depends. So, you know, like, because we are not the caseworker who have to like go through all the stories, you know, I'm sure it's exhausting. You know, this is just like such a wonderful, wonderful tale. I just love her so much. And in one of the review, they said that there's a Spanish word, that's a hogar, um, which means it's to, like literally means to undrown, to vent. And that is exactly what she did in this book, just venting like her whole life story. And so this is How to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. And Fiona, I heard that the audiobook is an absolute standout. Um, apparently, it's just amazing. And I'm very tempted to even buy that because I just would love to hear her voice in an audiobook. So I hope you would go have a chat with Kara. Well, it's more like a one-sided conversation. But anyway, it is amazing. This is my number free pick. Totally not what I expected, but it was just such a wonderful read. Yeah, that actually kind of sounds like a Fiona book, Virginia. <laughs> I will definitely check that out on audiobook. It could be, especially in the audiobook form. Mm-hmm. I think it would be, it would be really fun. I, I just, I, I think her voice is going to be so good. So Fiona, what is your pick? So for my number three pick, I actually had read this one for our read a book in a genre you don't usually read. 
So it is also my kind of like odd one out because I went with a self-help book. It is called How to Keep House While Drowning by Casey Davis. And the byline is A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing, which is important because I believe this was previously like published with a different subtitle. Um, and I'm I'm imagining it's for marketing that they kind of like, you know, maybe pushed it a little bit uh, differently. And I think um, that this approach is very su- successful. So this is essentially Marie Kondo or people with executive functioning difficulties. So it's not so much the content that I appreciated so much as the voice and the format. It really impressed me and kind of showed me some things that I've never seen done in a book before. It has like a shortcut guide for people who are like non-neurotypical and also some like translations of of metaphors uh, for people on the autism spectrum. And I'm glad that they put the word gentle in the in the title because that's really what it is. The author is so gentle and understanding and is basically encouraging you to to give that to yourself as well. It's not about bullet journaling in a beautiful way. It's not about folding your socks. Her most practical advice in there is this like five-step approach to cleaning, which is divide it into garbage, things that have a place, things that don't have a place, dishes, and laundry. Um, and basically uh, tackle each one of those separately, you know, maybe even on a different day. So the idea is not to have a sparkling home, but basically to survive uh, in a way that gives you back your dignity. And like I said, it's not... There's not a whole lot of those like, you know, practical bite-sized things, but it's this gentle way that she's leading you through it to say like, look, you might have a health issue that is stopping you from being this phenomenal home cleaner or you may be going through loss and all of these things you know, we need to give ourselves a break on uh, and, and you know, not even necessarily for like a period of time, but maybe it's your life and maybe you need to draw back your expectations for how clean your home is. And the, her bottom line is that is not not a moral. It has nothing to do with morality. You can be messy and moral. They are entirely unrelated things <laughs> and sort of breaking down this societal expectation that you can't be a good person if you're a messy person. So it it really touched me, <laughs> especially as someone who doesn't read much self-help. Sort of this self-help book to tell you that you don't need self-help books <laughs> and a very, very gentle voice. So I would definitely recommend that if you are someone who likes self-help as like maybe sort of a different approach to it. But also, if you're not someone who likes self-help, because this is really a a more, I think, human philosophy than some of the others. Not to say that those ones aren't good, but it's recognizing people are different and different people need different approaches to everything, even the practical things like cleaning in our life. So it's also really short. And like I said, it has that like shortcut version or, you know, if you want to tackle a specific problem, I hope it does get some some traction. That is how to keep house while drowning. Thank you, Fiona. I think we're like, we're all like nodding our heads off, especially when you say the word, just because you're messy (laughs) doesn't mean you're a bad person. (laughs) That is something that we can all sort of embroider on our 
whatever pillow. Um, so yeah, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, so those are our no, uh, number three, number three, number three. I can't remember number three picks. Um, so thank you for that. And so we're gonna go into our number two picks. So Mark, what is your number two pick? My number two pick is an ongoing manga series called Blue Period. So this series began publication in English in 2020, but I felt the need to include it here because the volumes that were published this year have been particularly outstanding in my opinion compared to other works of fiction, be it a YA or adult manga visual versus like a traditional novel. It's definitely stood out as being exceptional in my opinion. So I felt the need to include it here on the list for 2022, even though you could argue it's technically 2020 or however you want to slice it up. So in this series, the popular high school student, Yatora Yaguchi, is beginning to wonder what he's going to do with his life. With most of his time spent coasting on minimal studying and time in bars, he mostly hangs out with his three best friends late at night watching soccer and indulging in some drinks and smokes that aren't exactly legal for someone his age. As someone who's mostly living on the surface without really having a deeper or guiding interest in his life, Yatora is kind of just coasting along, going with the flow, as a moderately popular, moderately successful student. This changes when he encounters a painting by one of his fellow students and member of the art club, Maru Mori. Something about the combination of the technique, subject matter, and overall composition strikes Itora in a way that he has never felt before. Through his interactions with Mori, his non-binary classmate Yuka, and others in the art club, Yatora begins to look at art, inspiration, interest, and passion in a way that he never imagined before. Thus begins Yotora's journey into the world of art, with him progressively joining the art club himself. He joins a night art school where he meets other uh, students who are aspiring to make it to art school, and then eventually preparing for art university entrance exams as well. Through his new experiences, Yotora makes new friends, um, expands his perspective of what art is, what its purpose can be, and the many ways in which art can be a deep expression of the person who created it. Because that's sort of like what originally drew him to it, his ability to begin to express himself and seeing other people expressing themselves through their art and how that how that really changed his way of looking at things, his way of experiencing himself, his way of approaching life. And just in general, it is this very transformative thing in his life. The series features a lot of colorful characters, as I mentioned, from Yotora's high school, his night school, and in the more recent volumes that came out this year, his adult life and his life in university. There's also a lot of famous art and art theory in this series. So if you're interested in learning about historical artists, schools of art, and the kinds of thoughts that go into making a work of art, then you'll find a lot that's of interest here as well. Or if you don't already know much about art, then experiencing things from Yotora's perspective is also kind of interesting because you can kind of learn and gradually pick things up as he does throughout the series. You're kind of experiencing it in the way that he experiences it in a way almost. And I just found this very interesting because it almost combines like a good fictional story with this kind of non-fictional theory and uh, history and things like that into a very good narrative that combines a lot of things that you don't, don't often see in many um, narratives. So that also made it very special for me. So if you like a good coming-of-age story, are interested in, or have always wanted to know more about art, or just want a really good manga series with a realistic plot, then you may also like Blue Period. Yay, a manga recommendation. Thank you, Mark. All right. Okay. So, Miss Corrine, what is on your number two spot? All right. For my number two, I feel like Liz would be really proud of me because I actually read and enjoyed one of my most anticipated books of the season. 
after giving her a tremendous amount of grief for not reading a book that she talked about and then I realized that I was actually the hypocrite and never read the books that I was going to read, I decided to go back and pick up one that I had talked about in the most anticipated of the fall and ended up loving it. And it makes sense as to why I chose this book to read is because it has all the things I like. Romance, demons, noir, emotions. So this is a historical romance fantasy noir by Canadian author C.L. Polk, whose previous book, Witchmark, <laughs> um, was up for CBC Canada Reads, which I thought was a bold choice. This is their newest novella. My number two pick for the year is Even Though I Knew the End. And this is about Elena Brandt, a warlock in kind of like Chicago uh, during the time where there are a lot of private gumshoes, um, made a deal with the devil 10 years ago. So her number was up. She was in it. Her family was in a car accident um, and she was the sole survivor, but she was unwilling to accept this fate. And so she dragged herself to the crossroads, summoned a demon and made a deal. In return for her brother's life, she would give up her soul. Now, the demon is not unreasonable. The demon is not a monster. The demon t gives her 10 years, 10 years to go and do what she wants. And then they will call in their chip. And Elena, kind of bereft at the loss of her family, decides to take that offer. However, her brother, who is also a warlock and member of the Brotherhood, is not thrilled with that because... um. She's now the enemy. She is a soulless operator. And he essentially disowns her, leaving her all on her lonesome, cast out of the society of their called auspects, who are kind of magicians. But she decides to kind of take up life as a bitter, grizzled private eye. However, these 10 years haven't actually been that bad. She has fallen in love with Edith Jarowski, and together they live and they are planning a future together. However, Elena knows that those days are numbered, and in fact, the number is three. She has three days left before she is sent to hell forever. However, there is a little glimmer of hope because, of course, a dame walks into the office with an offer that she can't refuse. If Elena can track down the White City vampire who is terrorizing and killing their way across Chicago, the demon will give her her soul back. However, this case is, of course, not what it seems, and Elena might have bitten off more than she can chew. This is a delightful, sapphic, romance, history, gumshoe, private eye, LA Confidential type uh, story. It is right up my alley. And I really, really enjoyed the way that C.L. Polk just was like, oh, you want, you want tropes? Here, have them all. Have all of them. Have every single one you want. It was a buffet of tropes and I ate it up. So this is my number two book, even though I knew the end. Thank you, Miss Corrine. <laughs> 
Uh, it's great when they deliver, right? It's great when they deliver. I, I feel like all of my picks this year have been people who are like, this is what I'm going to do. And then they do it. And every book that I have not enjoyed, I think we were talking a little bit earlier about how we felt like this wasn't a great reading year for some of us and that a lot of the books just didn't fulfill the promise that they had or they were just kind of mediocre with a great concept. And so kind of like what ended up being on my list was all these books that had maybe not like the most the most unique concept, but what they had, they nailed. What a uh, perfect segue. <laughs> Thank you for that perfect segue for my book because you're absolutely right. There are some authors that I love so much. And then I, I was looking so, so forward to the new books. And then I'm like, what happened? What happened? But this, one of my number two pick, is an author that did not disappoint. I love his debut novel. And I was so excited when um, I know that a new book is coming out. And it was on my one of my most anticipated episodes. And it not just not disappointed, completely exceeded my expectation, unlike others. And I have very, very high hopes for him. So I am so happy, so happy that this turns out to be an amazing read. It is Simon Jimenez, The Spear Cuts Through Water. On the surface, it feels very much like a epic fantasy that you might have heard before, right? You have the moon and the water, they falling in love, they long to be with each other. But when someone came along to free the moon, instead of taking her to the water, they decided to imprison her and to steal her power. And so we have the moon from kingdom ruled by a tyrant and his three sons, the free terrors. And so for centuries, they are oppressing everybody in the kingdom for their own good. With this goddess imprisoned, the goddess also is their mother. The moon is dying. It's a fragile body. And she managed to convince a grandson of hers, June, who is in charge of guarding her and a favorite son of one of the terror, to free her because she knows that June is haunted by all the cruel things that he has to do for his father. And so they manage to escape and team up very reluctantly with a one-armed warrior named Kima, who has his own quest to go. Um, he has been entrusted with a spear by his general that he's supposed to go take to his family. And so now they're both kind of together going on this quest to find a way to end the moon throne, to deliver this spear with the free terrors in pursuit and try to reunite the moon with the water. And June and Kima started off, of course, you know, like not trusting each other, especially because June is one of the Terra Sun. But eventually, of course, they learn to rely on each other. They fall in love. And yes, it is a relationship story. It got romance in it, but it's okay because Simon Jimenez is writing it and it is amazing. And all of this happens in five days. You know, so so it sounds like if you if you read Epic Fantasy, it sounds kind of a familiar story, but I promise you this is unlike any epic fantasy you have ever read before. And it's all about the form and the structure of the story. It is sort of this shifting from point of view, including a second person point of view, which is done so, so, so well. There's a, a you in this story and you are listening to and remembering the stories that your Lola, which is grandmother in Tagalog, tell you about the old countries. And, and you gather that this you is sort of living in another country right now with their own struggles as, a, as an immigrant. 
and you're listening to the stories. And then you're also invited to participate and, and hear this story and watch it unfold as kind of a dance in this place called the inverted theater, which is a, a place where when the moon, when it used to want to visit the water, it would cast its reflection into the water surface and created this inverted world. And that's where they build this theater. And that's where you are kind of transported to go watch it. But you're not just a spectator because at some point you are very, very crucial to the story um, and you will collide with, with the characters June and Kima at one point. Throughout the story, you hear snippets of, of everybody's stories around you. And they are usually like give you a bit of a glimpse to, to all these other characters that are just like side characters or they're kind of like, you know, in the background. Um, or sometimes you might be holding an object and you hear sort of the story of the creator of this object. Um, but it's like this collective voice and to make sure that no one gets forgotten in this story. It is it is so I, I'm totally not doing it justice to explain it. And this is going to be like my 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 number one pick is the same thing. It's just like it's one of those books I and it's not helpful in a podcast to say you got to read it, you know, to experience the book. But it is really like that. It's just this really ambitious book that you really need to read to experience why it's so amazing and so stunning. And I was reading what people think about the book after um, I, I read it. And a lot of people say this is not a book for everyone. And I'm just like, no, but everybody should read it. Uh, but I also understand what they're trying to say, because I think it is for readers who don't mind not having um, a, a sort of a solid kind of like ground to stand on. You have to be willing to get lost for a bit and be lost for a bit and be OK with that, because it is so unlike anything that you have read. It's an epic story, but it's also so intimate in in some ways. It is um, a story for everybody who loves like, you know, like family story, who loves folktales. It is just amazing. It is it's one of my favorite fantasies, definitely of all times, really, um, but definitely my my favorite fantasy of the year. So this is Simon Jimenez, The Spear Cuts Through Water. Reminds me of a quote from Jane Austen. If I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. It's really difficult to talk about the books that we love and that touch us so deeply because just talking about the plot is not enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for books that are like really like, like they, they use a very different, unique kind of storytelling technique, it's really hard to describe it because you can't really explain what it is. You really do have to experience it. But that's my excuse anyway for not doing a good job in explaining this book. Um, but yeah, so that is my number two pick. What is your number two pick, Fiona? I have to apologize for being a bit boring for my number two and one pick uh, because they are ones that I've already talked about on the podcast. So no big reveal moment. Um, but my number two is a sapphic YA sports romance. It is Home Field Ad Advantage by Dahlia Adler. Basically, we've got the high school cheerleading junior i think that's like grade 11 right <laughs> um who wants to be the captain the next year and then the high school football captain has previously died in a car accident the whole school's really broken up about it but to be honest they were a pretty bad team and he was not a very nice guy so a lot of the sort of like oh Robbie was so great we miss him is is really not that honest so when a new 
captain is illegally scouted a new uh sorry not just captain but also a uh, quarterback you know the one who throws the ball the scenario is already precarious at best however the fact that she is a girl does not go over well with the team of course a romance ensues between the cheerleader and the new football quarterback and what i think really brought it over the top from just a you know like fun uh romance that was hitting some of the points that i enjoy was this discussion of patriarchy in sports and yeah these these sort of powerful characters who are reluctantly but ultimately willing to fight for what's important to them against these sort of societal norms so i don't really think of myself as a romance reader I definitely lean towards queer romance, um, but I'm realizing that I do like romance. And I think part of it is the diversity that is out there in romance right now. You can pretty much say, like, I'm interested in this kind of character with this kind of background, and I want it to be about sports, or I want it to be about baking, or I want it to be about meh, and it exists. And I think that that is pretty exciting. And they're also not super, like, they're not always cookie-cutter romances. Like, I don't I don't care about the big meet-cute, and I don't care about the scenario in which they finally tell each other that they love the, each other. I care about those, like, moments where they get to meet each other's families, or share each other's interests, or, uh, you know, back each other in a difficult situation. <laughs> those are kind of what makes my heart flutter. Um, so I do think it's an exciting time to be reading romance because, you know, you can say, I want this and that and that, and then you can go find it. And there's also a lot of good execution out there because that's also important. You can say, I want this and that, and then it doesn't follow through. But this one definitely does. And certainly... I love my romance with a side of sports. I think that is a great place for sports to be in literature. So if you like sapphic romances and you want to read about sports, I would highly recommend Home Field Advantage for both a satisfying and comforting read uh, that delivers a little bit more. I think that's the line. This is a great place for sports to be literature. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure um, Corinne approve of your assessment of the romance genre. All right. We finally arrive at our number one pick spot. Oh, this is so exciting. We're going to go start with Mark. Mark, what is your number one pick of 2022? So my number one pick of the year probably won't come as a surprise if you sort of listen to some of the things I've said before, but so my number one of the year is Scattered All Over the Earth by Yoko Tawada. In this story, Yoko Tawada's latest creation, we follow Hiroko, a Japanese refugee living in Denmark, and Knut, a Norwegian linguist, and their travels across a near future ravaged by environmental collapse, widespread migrant flows, and countries like Japan have ceased to exist altogether due to somewhat unexplained environmental catastrophes. Hiroko, in her attempts to adapt to the mix of European languages that she has encountered, creates a kind of homemade, quote-unquote, language, as she calls it, that she refers to as Panska, or Pan-Scandinavian, which she uses to teach migrant children, most of whom are from the Middle East, but other regions as well. And one reviewer of this book kind of referred to Panska in this way that I found was very interesting, as Panska reads like a Japonic parody of Nordic syntax translated into West Germanic language. So if that sounds kind of complicated, it's, there is a lot of unique sort of language things going on in this book, which is very much par for the course for Tawada, as she loves to play with 
idioms and bits and pieces of language as she combines them, borrows pieces from others, and kind of recreates her own kind of idiomatic language system. This unique language garners local Tevin courage for Hiroko, which is how she meets the linguist Knut, who first upon Hiroko on TV is immediately captivated. And as he puts his his thoughts immediately begin to roam through his mind, like Huns on horseback roaming through the fields. And there's kind of like these lots of little uh, metaphors in that kind of way in the language and speaking of the characters. Determined to find other Japanese language speakers for Hiroko to converse with, Hiroko and Knut set out on a trip that takes them to various countries in Europe on a kind of picaresque journey where they meet an assorted cast of colorful characters, including Nora, a cultural heritage worker from Germany who works at the birthplace of Karl Marx, Akash, a transgender woman from India whose identity is influenced by both Indian and Western ideas of gender identity, Nanuk, an Inuk man from Greenland who fiercely defends the rights of his indigenous and Inuit people to maintain their own cultural and identity. But he also goes by a second identity called Tenzo and his journey to learn about sushi, Japan, and the secret to the perfect umami flavor. There's also a mysterious Japanese man slash robot, we're not quite sure which, named Susano O, whom they plan to take to Stockholm to be examined by a speech specialist that Knut is acquainted with because Susano O is no longer able to speak but it's perfectly fine mentally and physically. And each of the chapters of the book perspective shifts among the different characters. And we can see vastly different styles of thought, thinking and speech between the characters, as well as between their inner way of thinking in one language, set of idioms and et cetera, and their outer way of expressing it in multiple different languages, depending on who they're with at the time. This includes the way they perceive themselves versus how others perceive them, their motivations and feelings toward the other characters, and how they understand the role of language, culture, and their identity in their lives. And there's a lot of themes of around this cultural identity, language, diaspora, environmental instability, and all these kinds of topical things going on within the narrative throughout it. And this is actually the first book in a planned trilogy, apparently, from what the publisher has said. So there's a lot more to come in the plot overall. So there's not a ton of resolution at the end, but there's a lot of emphasis on the, the sort of the journey along the way as we sort of like are just sort of starting out. This is the beginning of their journey, more or less, as we sort of, they set out across Europe to find more speakers, more people with interesting identities and experiences that I'm sure will come up in the following books. So if you like writers with a unique worldview, explorations of culture, language, or identity, or if you're interested in a story with continent-spanning travels and chance meetings, then you may also like scattered all over the earth. Yay! Number one mark pick! Uh, I need to add that to my list. That sounds amazing. So, Corinne, it is your turn to reveal your number one pick of the year. I'm so, like, nervous and filled with emotion. This is the big reveal where we get to hear everyone's top pick. And my favorite book of this year, I would kind of describe as a gut punch that hits a little too close to home. Just to kind of show you the quality of this particular book, I kind of wanted to start with a quote from it. And it is about uh, one teacher talking to our main character. He says, I still think you should graduate. You can keep pushing just a little longer. Think about your future. I felt like what he was saying was true, but the voice in my head overrode it with, but my present is already too much. I was losing sight of the line between what I needed to accept and what I could run from in order to protect myself. Oh, 
This is the story of Akari, who is a high school student whose life centers around her Oshi, her idol. Her life is completely centered around Masaki Ueno, who is part of the J-pop group Masa Masa. He is her life raft because in every other aspect, Akari is drowning. Her real life is too much. She has what is not really articulated, but a learning disability of some sort. It's kind of hinted at that she might have, uh, she might be dyslexic. The author has based this on her brother's experience in the Japanese school system. She has oh, a very difficult family life. Her mother doesn't understand her. Her mother doesn't understand why she just can't try. Why doesn't she try harder at school? Why doesn't she try harder to apply for jobs? Why doesn't she try harder to study to try and get into university? Her mother doesn't understand and her father doesn't understand is that she is trying as hard as she can. At her job, she deals with really unpleasant older gentlemen. She's unable to cope with kind of competing instructions at the uh, small restaurant that she works at. She has problems with reading and writing. She has difficulties with food. She has a lot of difficulties in her life and finds it overwhelming. But the one place where everything makes sense to her is when it comes to her Oshi. Akari shines. She is able to perfectly transcribe and interpret his interviews. She keeps a blog where she goes over his interviews and his concerts and his shows, and she has a massive following of people her age and older. She makes friends with people online. She is able to do these amazing articulate analysis of uh, his shows and the symbology of his albums. She makes sure to keep on top of his merchandise, uh, make sure to help vote him into the most popular spot on shows, and she helps organize things like this. But both of her worlds start collapsing when her idol is accused of hitting a fan. And Akari cannot understand that. As she watches her idol, the person that she has kind of like built her life around, slowly fall from grace. This is a story about outsiders in a system. Both Akari herself, who is an outsider within the educational system that cannot support her, She's an outsider in her family. But it also talks about idol culture and that system as well, that entertainment system where Masaki Ueno is also kind of an outsider who wants to live his own life, to be his own person and to be himself. This is a book that takes on the idea of toxic fandom but also the beauty of fandom in bringing people together and giving them a purpose. It talks about the pop music machine and people that get ground up in it. But it also is about the question of what gives life purpose and what gives life meaning. Is being interested in an idol or a group just about escapism or comfort or is something like this, is loving something, can it give you a greater purpose? 
Can it give you motivation and community? And in some senses, can it save you? I loved this book. And you can see that there are actual post-it notes sticking out of it, which is something that I never, ever, ever do. But there are lines in this that took my breath away that I felt the need to like highlight them, although I never would because this is a library book, but like write them down somewhere. There's a section where she says, maybe if I kept putting out uncomplicated emotions, I could eventually turn into an uncomplicated person. There are, I, I literally had to like stop and put the book down at a couple of these lines, which are just so powerful and eviscerating. It's it's a book that is talking about so much and something that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, I stand BTS. I'm ARMY. So this is this kind of examination of what it is to be a fan was really personal and really interesting. But it's also talking about, you know, finding that sense of purpose in life when everything seems so out of your control, where getting up every morning is hard and where you always feel like whatever you do will never, ever be enough. This novella by uh, Rin Usami, translated by Asa Yuneta, is an award winner in Japan. And I think that it is such a fascinating, deep piece of writing for something that is so short. And what I loved in the back was the letters from the author, the letter from the translator, the letter from the illustrator, which were kind of explaining their approach to this particular book and what it meant to all of them. This book is my number one pick of the year, and I think it's one that I will return to and maybe buy my own copy so I can highlight things, although I never highlight things, so I'm going to get more post-it notes, which is a perfect excuse for me, is Idle Burning. And I actually wanted to end it with a quote from my idol group, BTS, um, from Shagun RM, that says, I think being a fan of something is really important in living. I call this living with passion or love. Those who have love and those who don't have different qualities of life. And that is my number one pick of the year, Idol Burning. Thank you, Miss Corrine. That is, I can tell, a very personal book for you. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. I think if people are not familiar with sort of that, that like you said, the pop machine in some of those countries are oh, like, um, so yeah, so thank you for sharing that. You know, I think that's that's going to go up on, I think, a few of our probably on a reading list because I think that sounds amazing. I didn't even know that we have it at our library. <laughs> and I might be the one who ordered it. No, adults, kids. Oh, no, you you sure did. It was going to be on my like best or my most anticipated list. But I was like, oh, maybe this is a little bit too personal. But <laughs> you definitely ordered it. So thank you. Okay. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> Just for you, apparently. I can't remember. Um, all right. So um, I will go for my number one pick, which I think is also in some ways like a, a very personal book. I think sometimes, you know, when we pick number, you know, like, I mean, it's all very artificial numbers, right? But like, I think a lot of times it's because it just land on your lap at the right timing. And I think that really makes a difference. And I think that's, you know, because all my picks are great. All everybody's picks are great, right? Like, but I think number one, because it just capture you in just the right time. Um, this is a book I read during the summer and I'm already like, yeah, this is number one. This is going to be number one. 
So I, you know, whatever books that I read afterwards, doesn't matter. This is going to be number one. And like I said, very much like my number two book is, it's, it's the form, it's the structure, it's the writing that is just so amazing. And that's what makes it special. So, you know, like even if I, you know, giving a summary, sometimes it's almost like a doing a disservice because I, I can't explain how wonderful it is. Um, it's actually a book that I never intended to read at all. I remember looking at the cover when I was browsing through like books that are coming out. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. That's, that's an interesting cover. And then I saw the name of the book. I'm like, okay, well, that's a bold combination. And so I didn't really think much of it until I read Ron Chow's review in the Washington Post. And I think there's a couple of people online that I, I feel like this year, especially, I think after I discovered his review of With Teeth by uh, uh, Chris and Annette that we talk about on the parenting episode where he said, this is a book you want to give to someone if you hate them in the baby shower. And then I just feel like I, I just decided to, you know, maybe I need to pay attention to his reviews. And, and he's, he's great, like, you know, in a lot of things that he said. Um, and he said of this book, he said, this is the weirdest and the most mind-blowing book about America that he has ever inhaled. And then in the second or third line of the review, he said the word fever dreams. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm there. I am totally there. And it is definitely a critique of sort of the hypocrisy of, of the ideals, you know, or those national kind of ideals that we believe in and those values that we believe in. If you're listening to this on the podcast, please go Google the cover. This is Thrust by Lydia Yuknovich. It is so amazing. The story, even though I'm not going to do it justice, is about 12-year-old Lesbe, whose name in Lithuania means freedom. And she lives uh, with her father in sort of the future, in about 2070, 2080. Because of climate change, they have the what they call the Great Water Rise. So a lot of the cities have been submerged underwater. So she and her father, they are refugees that have fled to America. Um, and they're now living in sort of like a New York, like what? old New York is. And her mother died in her old country and her little brother uh, was lost at sea when on their voyage here. And even though the world, like as we know it, like, you know, the society, everything is sort of broken down. But one thing that never goes away, xenophobia, you know, there was all these raids still, they were very organized to try to round up all the refugees and, you know, send them to who knows where. Lacey has a special ability that she learned from her mother. Um, she's able to travel back and forth in time through water. And she is what they call a carrier. And, and this is actually a concept Yuknovich talked about that she learned from Ursula Le Guin that she got to know for a few years. And, and so she's taking this idea of this, this carrier kind of um, concept. And Lacey is one of the carrier and, and guided by a turtle named Bertrand. She was able to kind of go back and forth in time to visit different people and, and carry these objects she will bring to them that will make a difference in their life. She visits in 19th century, she went to visit a French sculptor, Bertoldi, who is the designer of the Statue of Liberty, um, which of course is a gift from France to the States. And through his exchanges with his cousin, Aurora, who is a sex worker in the States, we sort of learn about these two people and, and with Aurora, who has um, a, a special kind of room in, in her house where she try to help people who are seeking out freedom. And then Lesbe also go and visit the laborers who are now assembling the Statue of Liberty. They're all sort of people, as they say, all of us from someplace else, you know, all brought together, all people of color 
by this particular statue and, and of course, what is supposedly symbolized. But even as they are assembling the statue, those kind of values changes because Yudnevich, when she was doing research for the statue, she she learned that the chains that the statue has is supposed to be in her hands because they want to show that's triumph over slavery. So they want to make it very obvious and she's supposed to be holding them in her hands. But of course, that might be too offensive to all the slave owners and all the white southerners. So, well, let's not do that. Let's hide it under her dress. Um, and so that's where it ends up. Um, and so in Lace Bay time, the Statue of Liberty is also submerged and 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 it's all kind of like a tourist attraction for, for people to go and see. And after Yuknovich learned about this and, and she wanted to sort of take this and write a story about it, about what these so-called values, these national values in America and, and how they are really, in some ways, they, they are only being kept alive by people who are sacrificed themselves for this, as, as the book said, the people who will never be fully counted. Um, in the country are the people who who Yulevich wants to showcase and want to give a voice to and the hypocrisy of this or of this what the statue means or what it's supposed to mean. Learning about Yulevich, like reading from her like interviews or you know on her on her off visits and getting to know more of her philosophy, her her beliefs, her perspectives in life. Like I I I I can't wait to dive back into the book because it's so complicated of a book that I feel like I'm missing a lot of things. She believes that a story can really regenerate you from trauma that you suffered. And um, she's uh, the author of a TED Talk and also a book called The Misfits Manifesto. And in there, she talks about how to be a misfit means to be willing to dive into the waters of one's life swim to the wreckage at the bottom and bring something back to the surface. And that is something that sh that this book really talks about and, and really touches on. And it's, it's the symbol of like sort of water in this book where there's really no beginning to end. And, and that's kind of like this book. If you're looking for like a linear story, this is not it. It's just, it goes everywhere, but it's like water, right? Like there's no beginning to end to it. Um, she's also very much interested in in bodies, you know, and, and with Statue of Liberty arriving basically in pieces because it's so big that they have to assemble together. And she believes that our bodies, we all carry stories of, of everybody and, and how we collectively hold things together. There's more and more things that I read about her, um, you know, what she think about history. Of course, like she's really not concerned about it because, you know, history is really just another story told by the people in power. And so there's, there's a lot of things that, that she believes in that I think really shows through in this book. I definitely need to do a reread with all that in mind. It is such a wonderful book and it's just beautiful writing. And I think like Corinne's book is, is personal because even though it's so different in tone and in style, it gives me the same feeling as I was reading Interior Chinatown by Chao Xu because I, I feel like as an immigrant, this is sort of like it, it gives me the permission to kind of reflect on what it means, you know, to be living in a country where they will never think of you as a Canadian. When they picture a Canadian, it is not you. And what that means, you know, when you're you're living in a country that constantly tells you that you're not really, you, you don't belong. And it's, it's literature that enable us to kind of really think about it and, and all these different ideas. It's such a complex book and it's so beautiful and it's just stunning. It's, it's visionary. There's so many ideas in this book that just like, 
completely mind-blowing for me. So yeah, I'm so glad that I picked this up. I don't think I would have picked it up because of the offer at first, so, but this is Trust by Lydia Yuknovich. All right, so that is my number one pick. So we have one more to go, Fiona. What is your top favorite, 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 favorite book of the year? Thanks, Virginia. I feel like uh, my book might be a good, a good foil against yours because I have chosen a very linear book, and I feel like it's not it's not super personal for me in content, but maybe more so in format because I feel like you know I like a lot of um, I think this book is somebody called it I don't know like sprawling or something like that like epic. Um, and I think I need those kind of books to to center me, those things that last over a long time, often about family or about about one person, just sort of to give you a reminder of like of, of the passage of time. And, and I think especially so especially during, you know, after the pandemic that we've gone through of just remembering like, you know time is long. <laughs> and so this book actually does begin in the 1920 pandemic and spans all the way to the, the present pandemic. It is Violetta by Isabel Allende. Allende is a seasoned author. She's a Peruvian-American, and the book is set in an undisclosed South American country. Uh, and of course, it follows Violetta, um, who is born to a family of five boys, and she's the first girl, and she's born amidst the turmoil of a pandemic. Early in life, her family, her rich family, goes bankrupt. Her father takes his own life, and they have to move to the country to sort of get away from all of this scandal. Uh, so there's a lot of reflection on on wealth and class, and and it's all sort of um, through Violetta's gaze of, of throughout her life, reflecting on the different places she's held in life, but particularly in terms of the the regime in her country and and how her her wealth may have contributed to to the negative aspects of that um so it's it's both provides a, a nice amount of reflection and actual just you know gripping and interesting events with interesting characters that are quite episodic and of course a whole uh, a zany family which i really enjoyed She's somewhere in between a lovable and unlovable character, which is nice. She has her flaws. <laughs> this was the one who her first husband is the is the vet who is just obsessed with um with like breeding cows. Um, and of course, so she he doesn't last very long, and she quickly has an affair with a hunky pilot who kind of lingers in her life for the rest of her life and is not generally a positive um as positive person in her life. She grows up to have children and to do many different jobs, you know, and in some ways at, at moments she's very self-made and then other moments relying entirely on her family's wealth and reputation. And just really, yeah, kind of hit that family epic um, stride that I really love. I was thinking this about the um the the other book that you talked about for your top five, Virginia, of of a book centering around uh, an older female character and how I don't know, I think it it gives it gives value and attention to a demographic who who in other uh, formats, I think, are not always seen. And so to to see her whole life, uh, even though she is quite affluent, 
And don't forget beautiful. Lots of things happen in her life because she's so beautiful. <laughs> um, but but really getting to appreciate her as a young woman and as an old woman, looking back, I found um, had a lot of value to it as a narrative. Yeah, so I feel like this is a is a very satisfying, well-crafted read. And and like you've said about some of the other books, both of you have said, you know, ones that sort of what they set out to do, they do it and they do it well. This is uh, definitely one of those. Violetta by Isabel Allende. Highly recommended. I feel like it's something that's got an entry point for pretty much everyone. So would recommend that as my number one top 2022 book. I read it early in the year and nothing else really surpassed it. So those are our top five picks for each of us. You know, I hope you would add some of those to your list. So now I'm going to ask my book friends, what book in 2022 that you wanted to read, but you haven't got to yet, but we have a holiday coming out. What are you going to be reading? Fiona. So I realized I put 87 books on my TBR from 2022. <laughs> so I just, I feel like I didn't scratch the surface. But what I'm particularly excited for, uh, and I think I talked about like maybe in a preview, is A Minor Chorus by Billy Ray Belcour. I have read his poetry and memoir. I'm pretty sure this is his um, fiction debut. Uh, so really looking forward to that kind of like poetic God punch that I know that it is going to be. And I think it's it's one I'll probably actually pick up in print just because because it will be, I think it'll be a nice physical read. So that, that'll be different for me. <laughs> How about you, Mark? Well, there's quite a lot because I tend to actually read a lot of books from the previous year more so than books from the current year. So there's going to be a ton of books from this year that I'm going to want to read in the future. Um, just to name a few, Diary of a Void, which Kareen talked about earlier. I was, That book was sort of on my radar before Kareen talked about it, but after she's talked about it, it's definitely one that uh, demands to be read, I think. Another one is Three Streets by Yoko Tawada, who I just talked about a moment ago. They also released a short collection of a few stories of hers by New Directions Publications that I definitely want to get into soon. One book that I mentioned in our most anticipated of the fall was Tatsumi Galaxy by Tomohiko Morimi. That one just recently released, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I really want to read that one. And another is A Private Spy by John Le Carre. It's a collection of his letters and kind of correspondences over about four or five decades. And I've always been a huge fan of his, so the opportunity to read some of these less public details of his writing would be very interesting as well, I think. Well, thank you, Mark. And Corrine, what's on your reading list this holiday? All right. So I'm waiting for some holds to come in. Uh, first one is Ducks by Kate Beaton, which I think is going to destroy me emotionally. Um, and being from Alberta, it's going to be a rough read. So I'm I'm definitely going to read it. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I just, I'm, I'm waiting for the hold. Another one that I just got in that I'm also looking forward to is I'm Glad My Mother is Dead by Jeanette McCurdy because it's a great title and uh, I have also heard great things about that. That is a memoir from the child actor who had a very narcissistic mother growing up and it's kind of like an expose of that kind of like child actor system, which I think would be very interesting. And then um, there is, a, I think, two short stories by uh, Osamu Dazai, uh, Early Light, which came out this year, who is the author of uh, The Setting Sun and No Longer Human. Um, again, it's an old book that's just kind of been translated, um, but I'm really looking forward to because those are two books of his that I read this year that I really like. So I'm always glad when they're kind of plumbing back into the author's uh, back catalog and bringing new things to light. So those are my three. 
for me, I'm hoping to continue on The Haunting of Haji Hotek by Jammu Jan Kochai. It's a short story collection. Um, and I read the first one, which I, I, I'm hoping Gabriel will be here because uh, I think they would appreciate. It's called Playing Metal Gear Solid 5, The Phantom Pain. It's about a young man who's like sort of playing this video game, you know, like so super excited to to go shoot some things. But then he sort of like started to like he started to see his father's village in Afghanistan in the game. And he sort of blurs into that very surreal kind of like, you know, getting to the memory of like war happening. And he started to see sort of characters like his relatives in the game. It is amazing. It is so good. Um, so I cannot wait to continue that book um, because I think his stories is going to be amazing. And I, of course, you know, Labi Tihar uh, Neom with a new book that came out that I haven't got a chance to read yet, but it is set in the same world as Central Station, which I really, really love. So I can't wait to read his new book. And one more, because there's so many, but one more, um, it is Eugene Bacon. It's a book called Mage of Fools. It's not about the dictator, but it's about the dictator's sorcerer. So I cannot wait to read that. Um, so yeah, so those are my picks. And yeah, so I am uh, so excited that, you know, like we have so many book suggestions for everybody. And I know this year has been great. Next year is going to be just as great. So I am looking forward to 2023. And of course, we'll do our most anticipated episode to give you some suggestions and some preview of some of the books that are coming out that we are excited about. So can't wait for that. Um, so, you know, again, thank you everyone for being with us for 2022. Um, we hope you'll join us again in the new year. So have a great holiday, have a happy new year, and we will see you in 2023. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.